you're visiting with us, let me greet you. My name is Greg. I serve here as the lead pastor, and uh, it's a privilege to study the Word and share with you week to week what I found. We've been studying through the book of Ephesians, and um, it's with some regret that we're getting to the end because I've loved this book so much, and, uh, and uh, we'll, we will find another book, though, that we'll fall in love with again. But today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll study verses 5 through 9. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Please follow along in the translation that you have. If you didn't, bring a Bible with you. Uh, there's a blue pew Bible in front of you, and you can grab one of those. If, uh, if you don't own a Bible, a personal copy of the Bible, then please consider that blue one to be yours. and Take it home and read it, and uh, if you wear it out, bring it back and get another one. We're totally fine with that. Let's read. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening. Know that he, who is, that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to know your mind, to give us uh, wisdom to understand what you have for us today. So much of our lives is spent with the vocation that you've placed us in. We spend so many hours a week doing work, trying to make ends meet, doing things that we've trained to do. And so it stands to reason, Lord, that you would give us such clear instruction of a work ethic that pleases you. And I pray that you would help us to submit our attitudes and actions to the Spirit who fills us and teaches us his ways. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when the Lord wanted to choose an earthly father for the Lord Jesus Christ, he chose a man who was by trade a carpenter. This was a man who had to go chop down trees by himself. He had to then split those logs into boards and then plane them down and joint them together and bore holes and install them all without modern machinery. This was the man that God wanted Jesus to grow up under. When Jesus handpicked a spokesman for the first church, for the church, you are Peter on this rock, he chose a fisherman. A man who labored day in, day in and day out in the hot sun, lugging nets, mending them, throwing them into the water, pulling them up, throwing them into the water, pulling them up, sorting the fish. This was labor-intensive work. And this was the first preacher of the church. When God handpicked the foremost thinker and writer for the church, the Apostle Paul, whose wisdom and whose mental acuity was second to none, 
who is master of all things philosophical, this man supported himself with the hard work of mending tents. Here was a man who moved huge bolts of thick leather skins, who had to run large needles through that thick hide over and over and over again. I'm sure by the end of his life, his fingers ached with the arthritis that would come from such a trade. Strong hands whose knuckles were constantly scraped and torn by the garments that he had to lug with all his might. You see, the Apostle Paul, this man himself, said in the church of the living God, there are few who are noble, few who are wealthy, few who are the upper 1%. No, no. Deep in the DNA of the church of the living God is this salt-of-the-earth work ethic. As a matter of fact, wherever false religion goes, do you know what one of the first things to fall into disorder is? Well, it's work. The Athenians, the Romans, they were notoriously poor workers. As such, half the city of Rome was said to be slaves because Romans considered themselves beneath manual labor. Not so for Christianity. Christianity is this sort of salt of the earth, common man faith. Whereas before their work was drudgery and they had to labor just to make ends meet. With the gospel, with the dawning of redemption, suddenly the thing at which we toil has a heavenly calling, has a divine purpose. And we start laboring not to put food on the table, but we start laboring for the king and his glory and all that is his. No, no. The Christian and his work, it's his way of worship in many ways. And so it's to that work ethic, it's to that labor to which Paul is calling our attention this morning. If you look, right in the first words of this verse, it says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. Now, as we remember, the Apostle Paul has been talking about spirit-filled relationships. All the way back in chapter 5, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Be, do, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And he's going to go on to fill out what those relationships look like when the Spirit gets involved. When you ask Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, we're told in this book that you are adopted by the Spirit. You are born into the family of God by the Spirit of God. And that Spirit indwells you and begins informing you and helping you. And when the Spirit is informing you and indwelling within you and helping you, your relationships begin to take on a new meaning. He addresses, of course, the fundamental relationship that we have, husbands and wives. And then he moves on to children and fathers. And now he's going to turn our attention to bondservants and masters. Now, you might think at first that that's a bit out of place. Because first we have husbands and wives, children and fathers. Shouldn't there be another relationship that's closer? Well, consider this. How many hours a day do you spend at your occupation? Many of you are spending more hours a week doing your jobs than you are with your families. It's time-consuming. It fills your thoughts. It fills your minds. It dominates your week. 
So why wouldn't Paul speak to something that's so pervasive in your life and give it meaning and purpose? Well, Paul's going to turn his attention here, and it's far more relevant than what we might think. But the first thing we need to do is take a little detour, unfortunately. Okay? Well, maybe fortunately, who knows? I don't know. But he says right here, slaves, obey your earthly masters. And right away, we're brought into a world that is extremely odious in our current culture, as it should be. Slavery, the type of slavery that we think of when we hear the word, there is a, we think immediately of the American South in the 1800s and the Civil War that came as a result of it, motivated by white racial superiority and the availability of cheap African labor. It was a blight on our nation. It was a blight on the English culture. And we did well to get rid of it. But when we consider that, that's what immediately comes to mind. And it's repugnant in our culture. In fact, just this week, there was a high school football team in California. I don't know what the boys were thinking. They videoed a mock slave auction. Several of the students who were being auctioned were African-American students themselves. The video went viral. The team was forced to forfeit at least one game because this was so such an offense to those who saw it. Now, I don't know what was in those boys' minds. I don't know what they were trying to communicate. The only thing I'm trying to illustrate is that this subject in itself is quite volatile, especially in our day and age. It's, it's explosive. But what we have to keep in mind is that when Paul addresses slaves to people living in ancient Rome, this was something very different than we think of when we talk about slavery. Was there that racially motivated, awful type of slavery that dominated the American South? Well, of course there was. But that was a small part of this broad institution, this utterly pervasive institution that they had that tackles many problems that we face today. I have a question for you. Did anybody here serve ROTC? The government paid for your college. And as such, you gave how many years back to the government to repay the debt of their college payment? Five years. We call that... ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps. Ancient Rome called that slavery. Okay? How many of you have been down to the Weber County Transfer Station and you've had the men assist you taking your garbage out of the trailer? How many of you have done that? The men working there are low-security inmates who have been allowed work release. Their time goes to paying debts, court costs, child support, so on and so forth. We call that work release. Do you know what ancient Rome called that? Slavery. (laughs) We have chapter 11 bankruptcy. They didn't have that back then. If you found yourself with debts you could not pay, you would sell yourself and your business into slavery, and though you maintained quite a bit of personal liberty and autonomy, much of your wages were 
garnish to go back to paying the debt that you had to pay off. We call that chapter 11 bankruptcy. Ancient Rome called that bankrupt, called that slavery. Okay, Here's my point. There was much in the ancient world, many of the same problems that we tackle today. We subdivide them into different categories and call them different things. Slavery, as awful as it was in certain aspects, was different back then. It was a catch-all phrase for all these different types of things. Furthermore, there were many in Rome who willingly, voluntarily became a slave because there was financial benefit to it. They, didn't, they had job security. They had medical care. They had steady wages, and they found themselves a great boss, and they wanted to keep him. They didn't want to lose it, so they willingly, voluntarily put themselves under that yoke. My point in bringing all of this up is that when we read these words, slavery, yes, there was that awful portion of it that we associate with it, but there was much more to it that we would do well to read in and understand what Paul is talking to. Does that make sense, everybody? Now, the Bible nowhere condones slavery. But the Bible is not about anarchy either. Paul's major concern is not so much about where we labor, but about how we labor. So I want us to just take three points on Paul's perspective. Number one, when it comes to this topic of slavery, when it comes to our own work and so forth, Paul wants us to make redemption our focus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 21 through 24, he counsels people. He says, look, if Christ found you when you're a slave, don't, don't worry about it. Don't, don't try to escape your slavery. Work for the Lord. If you can stop being a slave, if you can buy your freedom, go for it. If you're a freeman and the gospel found you, don't enslave yourself to anybody. You're a servant of Christ. In other words, Paul wants you to focus on your identity in Christ and your redemption and not worry so much about your external situation. If you can have liberty and freedom, great. If that's not available to you, live how Christ found you. Number two, Paul doesn't make any distinction between slaves and free in the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 14. And that was actually quite a challenge. Imagine a slave owner walking into a church service, and a man that he owns is the pastor. He's a bivocational pastor. Now, when Paul says, submit to one another, that takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? Now, so you know, in the Roman culture, slaves went up and down the social ladder. You could have the poorest of the poor, or you could have members at the highest, uh, in the highest echelons of government. Daniel, in the book, uh, Daniel, in the book of Daniel, was the prime minister, and he was a slave. Joseph was the prime minister in Egypt. He never stopped being a slave. He just changed owners. Pharaoh now owned him. And so all up and down the social classes, you could be enslaved. It would be very challenging for a master to submit spiritually to a man whose occupation and life you owned. But that's what Paul was asking them to do. Number three, slavery among Christians was strongly discouraged, even of this milder, kinder type. And Philemon, 
verses 8 through 19, the Apostle Paul is writing on behalf of an escape slave. Paul writes his owner, Philemon, about a young man named Onesimus. Onesimus. And he says, hey, I know Onesimus escaped you. As providence would have it, he ended up under me. Wouldn't you know it? Small world. I want him to stay and minister to me. But you own him. I'm sending him back to you. I know, as an apostle, and as your spiritual father, I could command you to release him, and you would do it. But I don't want to command you. I want you to want to do it. So please send him back to me. Oh, and by the way, I'm coming to you soon. Prepare a room for me. (laughs) This is arm-twisting in a sanctified way. The Apostle Paul doesn't come out and say, don't don't own slaves anymore. That's, That's not his business. But he is saying to him, look, your brothers, your brothers, your brothers in more of a real way than you could ever imagine. So don't hold this man. Don't own this man. Send him back to me. The Apostle Paul is in a sense undercutting these abuses to their core. And if he changes a man's heart and makes him understand the redemption of God, just like they did for William Wilberforce, slavery as we know it comes to an end. Because Paul knows that these problems that we face in society can't be dealt with directly, but indirectly. You change the heart, you change everything about that person. This is what the Apostle Paul's doing. However, we don't have slavery in our culture anymore. How many of us, however, are employed? Raise your hands if you're employed. Many of you, most of you, almost all of you. Okay. Well, this is where we have to employ some reasoning from greater to the lesser. Now, very quickly, if I could just be very practical for a moment here, often when I counsel people about their employment, they forget that they're choosing to work for that company. They forget that we live in a free country. And I say, you don't have to work for them. You're an American. (laughs) You're free. And they go, it's like they never considered that before, that they don't have to. You are willingly, voluntarily bringing yourself either under a company or under the will of customers if you're self-employed. Your customer is your boss. Yes, you're your boss, but you better keep your customer happy or you're not going to be your own boss for very long, right? Well, either way, you've chosen that. And so if Paul is going to give this sort of advice to people who don't have a choice, how much more does it apply to people who do have a choice? If it applies to them in adverse conditions, then it most definitely applies to us in free conditions. Make sense? In fact, the Apostle Paul makes this absolutely clear in our text when he says, whether you be slave or free. So this applies to you whether you're slave or free, and everybody in here 
is free. So, moving on now, we have, we're going to move through this a little more quickly now. We had to take a little detour so that we could understand what the Apostle Paul is doing because these are concepts so foreign to us. But we're going to have eight points. We're going to go through them very quickly. Six traits of a spirit-filled worker, and then two bonus ones for bosses, okay? Because Paul says, if you're a boss, if you're a master, do the same, so they apply to you too, but let me give you two more, okay? Now, why six points? It might surprise you to learn the Apostle Paul makes six points, okay? And then he makes two of them to bosses. So, let's get into this very quickly. Six traits of a spirit-filled worker. Six traits of a spirit-filled worker. First thing I want you to notice from this text is that a spirit-filled worker keeps a constant Godward focus. I want you to look right here in our text at the five times the Lord directs your attention to himself. Look right here. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would to Christ. That's number one. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. But as servants of Christ, number two, doing the will of God, number three, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, number four, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive from the Lord, that's number five, and then bosses get another one. Bosses say, knowing that uh, he who is both your Lord and master is your master and his. Bosses get an additional one. As an employee, five times you're told to continually direct your attention to God. Continually direct your attention to the Lord Jesus Christ, who wants to take control of your work, who wants to take control of your labor. So when you go to work tomorrow, when you labor for the Lord, have a constant Godward focus. That's the first trait. Second trait. Second trait of a spirit-filled worker is this, that you obey Christ by obeying your boss. That you obey Christ by obeying your boss. The word obedience here is the same word that's used for children, obey your parents. Now, of course, we talked to the children about that when we went through it. This is obedience with limits. If your boss asks you to do something unethical or ungodly, then of course you say no and you find a different job. But if your boss is asking you to do something within the keeping of your company, If he's asking you to do something that's neither sinful nor moral in any sense, he just wants you to do it, then God expects you to obey it. And he's going to tell you how to obey it. Because again, like we talked about with our children, you can obey with an attitude that's less than ideal. He says, obey, first of all, in fear and trembling. Uh, You could break apart these words and say obey in fear and obey in trembling. I don't think that's what the Apostle Paul had in mind. I think he's using more of a fear and trembling as like a phrase. Uh, uh, This phrase is used in Mark 5.33 and in 2 Corinthians 7.15. And both of these refer to a situation where the person in authority is placed in an awkward position. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying here is, make it easy on your bosses to rule you. He says, Titus came to you. Titus was coming to the Corinthians with a letter of rebuke. And they received this man who'd been put in a very awkward position. They received him with utmost respect and honor, with fear and trembling. 
The woman in Mark chapter 5 who had a hemorrhage, she touched Jesus, and Jesus said, who touched me? Everybody's saying, no, I didn't. And she came before Jesus in fear and trembling. It was an awkward moment. And she made it easy on the Lord to talk to her. And so, our bosses are going to tell us to do things. And if your boss is like any other boss, they don't take great pleasure in fighting with people. They don't take great pleasure in an argument or putting you in a bad spot. Very often, your bosses are telling you to do something that their bosses told them to do. And so, they're in a difficult position. And so it's on us to come under that and make it easy on them. Obey them that way. It says to obey in singleness or simplicity, sincerity of heart. This is, in, this is the opposite of a person who is two-faced or has mixed motives. There are employees who will behave one way when the boss is around. Great idea, boss. Boss, you're so smart. Boss, that's... Brilliant, and then as soon as the boss is out of earshot, what an idiot the boss is. What a dummy, what a fool, what a better manager I would be. It's a two-faced, mixed motive type of obedience that God condemns. Do not obey that way. Obey with sincerity and simplicity, unmixed. You might say, yes, but my coworkers do that all the time. Well, I have a suggestion. The next time they do it, say something positive about your boss, and guess what will happen? They will leave you. <laughs> They'll just leave you. You won't have to worry about that conversation anymore. They will find a different place to do it where you aren't, and you won't have to put up with it anymore. All it takes is once, one time supporting the person that God has put in that position. Number three, spirit-filled, the spirit-filled worker demonstrates faithful character such that Christ, rather than the worker, is honored. Okay, let me fill that out. It says right here, it says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, look, don't be the guy, don't be the gal who only works hard when the boss is there, when the boss is watching. But rather, work hard in such a way that whether it's you or somebody else, it's Christ who gets the glory. Don't puff yourself up, whether the boss is there or not. Puff Christ up by the way you work, by the way you put your effort into your job. Number four, Paul advises us to keep God's will central. Keep God's will uh, <laughs> sorry, that's a typo, at the center of his or her life, which flows out into your work. Let's look at verse 6. Let's look at verse 6. This is important. He says, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, from the heart. Now, does anybody here have a New American Standard with them today? A New American Standard? Anybody? Okay, nope, that's okay. Opal is usually my go-to New American Standard lady, but she, I think, is out of town today. The Greek word here is actually the word uh, suke, which means from life. Now, Paul could have easily used the word heart. He knows the word heart and uses it in several other places. 
But he says, I want you to do the will of God from your life, from your soul. And I think what Paul is advocating here is a work ethic where every day you go in, every day you begin your job, you say to yourself, it is God's will that I work hard today. It is God's will that I uphold the boss. It is God's will that I honor Christ. It's God's will that I labor for him. And from that conviction springs all sorts of positive outflows. Your life is transformed as one of pursuing the will of God. And Paul says, I I want your work to reflect that you realize and you meditate on the fact that you're doing God's will. Number five, verse seven, he says it right here. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. I have here that he keeps a positive, wholehearted attitude of good for one's employer. A spirit-filled worker keeps a positive, wholehearted attitude. This word for good, it's the Greek word agathos. It's just generally good, positive. It's not commending to Christ when... There's a place for caution, but when you find yourself being the constant devil's advocate, maybe they'll get the impression that you're the advocate of the devil, okay? (laughs) Now, of course, you need to have a work environment where you can share ideas or cautions or concerns, and especially if, if the Lord has put you in a position where it's appropriate to voice uh, a dissenting opinion, But there has to be an overall uh, direction of goodwill and positive thinking, wanting to move the wishes of your employee forward. And when that's the overarching attitude, a good manager will hear with joy a dissenting opinion, as long as the idea is, I want the good of the company. For the good of the company, I think there's something you need to consider. That's a sort of positive, forward-looking attitude that commends Christ. And then last, number six, number six, spirit-filled labor remembers God's certain reward for doing even the most menial tasks. Remembers God's certain reward even for doing the most menial tasks. You know, I think, about, I think about my dad. It's fitting that right before this, the Paul talks about fathers and sons. My dad was a hard worker. He woke up at usually 4.15 every day, and he usually got home after I got home from school, and he'd be so tired. His job was in shipping and receiving. His job was to He worked at a distribution center for Sears. And then he worked at a distribution center after Sears went out of business for McKesson, which is a large pharmaceutical company, and another job in between. My dad wasn't so much concerned about what was in the boxes, but that the box got where it needed to be when it needed to be there. That's what he did. 
Now, if you ask my dad, do you derive great pleasure from getting a box from point A to point B? My dad would look at you like you had nine heads, okay? Say, what are you talking about? I like my job because it was an honest living. It provided for my family. Gave me good health care. And if, if that's what it took to provide for my family, then amen, hallelujah, that's what I want to do. And I would really strongly encourage the same attitude. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're doing something great nobility or if you're doing something menial, if you're doing it for the Lord and you're doing it to provide for your family, if you're doing it for kingdom perspective, there is great honor in that. And Jesus says, he who is faithful in little things is faithful in much and will be entrusted with much in my kingdom, in my eternal kingdom. Imagine that. Imagine a person who did something very simple all their days. Perhaps they lived in Victorian-era England, and they worked in a, uh, a mill doing the same repetitive task 12 hours a day, six days a week, their whole lives. But they were prayer warriors, and they did their job well at a dead-end job with no upward mobility. But they loved the Lord, and they were faithful. Christ will reward that. Christ will reward that. So whatever your task is, do it with all your heart as to the Lord. Now, if you're a boss, all of these apply to you. All of these apply to you. Probably because you also have a boss. There's hardly anybody that doesn't also have a boss. But two traits of a spirit-filled boss in addition to what we've just covered. Number one, a spirit-filled boss never threatens his or her employees. Now, I think I'm saying this probably for the first time, but I do feel like the English Standard Version, the translation we use, uh, is a little bit too forceful here when it says, stop threatening. The, I think it should be better translated, leave off threatening. I don't think Paul is assuming that the masters are threatening. I think what he's saying is, as a master, it will be a great temptation for you to get people moving by threatening them. And I don't want you to give in to that temptation. Do not threaten people under your care. Why should you not threaten them? Number two, because you need to bear in mind that although certain people might be subordinates in the workplace, God sees everybody as equal. There is no partiality with your master. There is a king, there is a God who is God of both you and them. And they see no, he, they see no partiality between you two. God's not going to side with you simply because you're the master. Okay? So treat them well because your king is watching and he is no respecter of persons. Your threats might go somewhere with men who are powerless to stop you, but it will get you nowhere with the king. 
So labor. Manage your people. Yes, you have to hold them accountable. Yes, it's perfectly legitimate to communicate clearly consequences for jobs that are left undone. That's part of life and doing business. You can read the Proverbs about warnings and so forth. But there's a vast difference between a warning graciously given and a threat. And so, Paul says, don't do that because your king is watching. Now, I have two conclusions, but I'm going to give a bonus conclusion, okay? I meant to put it in there this morning, and I forgot to do so. Let me give the bonus conclusion first. If you would like a personal study of an object lesson for faithful work, I would suggest that you study the life of Joseph. He's an amazing guy, hard worker, valued of everybody that he worked underneath of. And while Joseph's work ethic is not the central theme of his life, there's enough there to where if you wanted to study that as sort of a side study, I think it would give you a lot of inspiration for how to do that. When I took my first real job, uh, my first 40-hour-a-week job, I made that a personal study, and it was so fulfilling, and I would commend the same to you. And if memory serves, I did that on my pastor's advice. So I'm just sending along borrowed advice. Okay, now let's get into the two conclusions we have. Number one, what we do pales in comparison to who we are. Okay. Some of you will, may have noticed, when I ask you, make small talk and conversation, I'll ask you, I'll say, what do you do? What do you do? I want you to know that's by design. I say that on purpose. Because it doesn't really matter what you do as long as it's wholesome. What really matters is who you are in Christ. What you do is fine. But that doesn't define you. It doesn't. Whether you exceed or whether you excel, whether you had to go to much schooling to be where you are, whether you had to advance through the ranks with lots of um, accolades and points of uh, achievement that you have to get along the way, certifications and so forth. It's just what you do. It's just what you do. It's your God who makes it a sacred act. So labor for the Lord, and if the Lord moves you to do this or to do that, that's fine. But you're a Christian. You are in Christ. You're his possession, and that's what matters most. Okay? So if somebody asks you who you are, I'm a Christian. (laughs) And this thing I do, it just pays the bills so that I can do more Christian stuff. Number two, keeping those priorities in mind. We should never work Christ around our careers, but our careers around Christ. I love it when I hear a young man who's getting a hold of the idea that he's a Christian, not a pastor. He's a Christian. He falls in love with a a church, and that's where he gets to. She can do it as well. We've seen young ladies do this too. 
And wherever in the world God sends them, that's their central concern, is the kingdom of God where God has called them to be. And then they let God take care of what they're going to do from 8 to 5 or from whenever they're going to work to whenever they stop work. Because they're in a place for God and his kingdom first. And they fit career around elsewhere. That's a person who has their priorities in shape. You're Christians. You've been bought by the blood of Christ. So get where he has you and work for him and trust that the Lord will bring you the occupation that you need to make all your ends meet. That's a Christian perspective on work. And it will fuel you as you work 8 to 5, knowing you have a great reward. Okay? Let's pray. Father, you've called us to an immense task, and that is to glorify Christ in the workplace. And it's hard to glorify Christ in the workplace when so much of our time is spent... um, taking care of tasks that, yes, they're life, but they can seem so disconnected from life. Keep us from besetting sins that happen in the office, gossip and backbiting and stealing. Keep us from sins like laziness and sloth and working only for eye service. But Lord, put in us the conviction that we're laboring for our king. And may we, like good workmen who need not be ashamed, give our lives to you in this way. We thank you that we live in a country with such freedoms. We don't have to worry about this sort of bondage anymore. So help us to work as freemen, understanding the given us all a higher calling. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for your good attention. Nathan's going to come now and lead us uh, in a final song.